Good night, good morning, good day, good evening. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hey, have you ever looked in the mirror and said, my life is pretty good, but it would be so much better with more RFID chips implanted under my skin? Well, if you've ever felt that way, the first caller, well, he's your guy. Not my guy, but he might be yours. Uh, He wants to know, why can't we just have smart guns where you have an RFID chip in your trigger finger, which contacts with the gun, and only you can shoot it? Let's just say I had a little bit of a pushback against the whole idea from a market standpoint, from a liberty standpoint, and so on. So that was a great, a great call. The second caller gave up millions of dollars because of free domain radio. Mm, Yes. Did I pique your interest? So he uh, operates a hotel in Sweden, and he was offered millions of dollars a year to take in some migrants. It was a challenge to make the decision, and we went over all of that in great detail, and uh, it was very, very noble. What he did, I think you'll be quite surprised at his decision, but uh, certainly ennobled and inspired by it as I was. The third caller is calling in from Chirac, from the bullet-ridden hellhole known as Chicago uh, these days, and he wanted to talk about the recent kidnapping and torture of the mentally disabled white man-child by the four black adults, the two men, and the two women that I talked about recently in a show. And uh, we did a pretty deep dive into what's going on, what it's like to live there, what it's like to be around this kind of violence. And uh, I think you'll find it very illuminating. This is grim stuff, but we need to gird our loins and look at it directly. So thanks, everyone, so much for watching, for listening, for sharing, for supporting this most amazing conversation. Please, please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. And you can do your shopping at ftrurl.com slash Amazon. All right, up we have Alex. Alex wrote in and said, Since gun violence is sometimes an accident... Why are gun companies hesitating to implement safety measures like RFID tags, GPS tracking, i.e. decommission as many guns in circulation as possible, and replace them with smart guns? Also, what makes people, quote, stick to their guns, so to speak, i.e. refusal to embrace safety by progress instead of keeping things as is because they like it that way? That's from Alex. Oh, hey, uh, Alex, how you doing? Doing fine, Stefan. Uh, so tell me, how's the current year treating you so far? Ah, uh, just lovely. Just lovely. How about you? Ah, uh, it's all right. It's like uh, I've been uh, through some uh, things lately. Living here in Germany, so I pretty much uh, decided to make a blank slate, but that's that's beside the point. So, yeah, did, did you watch the video that I uh, sent you? Yeah. I did. Um, I, I don't understand some of the technology. My understanding is that you get a chip implant in your trigger finger and that matches with the trigger of the gun and then you can shoot it. And if the chip is not there, then um, you, you can't. Is that right? Yeah, basically. So uh, uh, my question actually stems uh, from, uh, well, I started watching Westworld, you know, they got uh, these kind of... Uh, uh, Basically, also the, these smart guns where uh, it only works when it, 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 well, basically it's got electronics and stuff. And uh, yeah, I remember this um, this video. I and you, sorry, but you you have to have the chip. The chip has to be implanted under in your finger. Is that right? Like it has to go under your skin? No. Well, that's 
that video showed basically a prototype of how that kind of a system could work, you know. So, um, yeah. Uh. I, well, I mean, I can tell you why I think that people may not be all, all, all too keen on that, if, if you want me to, to sort of share my thoughts. Well, uh, as I mentioned, the, that RFID type thing is not the only thing that's uh, like the the issue with the guns, you know. So, like, uh, I read these uh, statistics of, uh, oh, not statistics, more like uh, stories of, like, how uh, kids uh, sneak uh, guns from their parents' uh, cupboards or something and end up shooting people or something. Or, like, uh, uh, I had this video in my Twitter feed earlier where, um, uh, like, uh, some drunk teens also... Uh, uh, got a gun from their parents and the uh, one got uh, shot and, and died and yeah stuff like that so like yeah so so about 600 like in 2010 firearms injuries accidental were caused the deaths of 606 people and eight percent of shooting deaths result from shots fired by children under the age of six <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. So let, let me put it to you this way. You have to be really, really fucking stupid to be in a household <laughs> where children under the age of six have access to guns that can kill people. Oh, yeah. Like, how how stupid do you have to be to allow that to happen? I mean, it's one thing to not completely childproof your house. It's another thing to have deadly weapons lying around where children can play with them. Now, I'll tell you this, man. <laughs> First of all, if parents are that stupid and dangerous and terrible, there's no way they're going to say, huh, I guess I'm going to get an RFID chip now, aren't I? Because what's a lot simpler than an RFID chip is keeping guns away from six-year-olds. That's a little simpler than going to get something implanted in your skin. So if you're trying to reach the people who are so retarded that they leave loaded guns with the safety off around children... You're not going to solve it with complex technology because I think a fucking shoelace is too complex a set of technology for idiots like that. So you just you can't reach those kinds of people. Maybe there should be an IQ test for owning a, f a firearm. I don't know. But you won't be able to solve it with that. That's number one. Number two, hang on. Number two is uh, people who like guns. Maybe I'm generalizing a little bit here, but I think it's fair to say that people who like guns usually not huge fans of the government. Now, RFID chips and biometrics and registration and all this kind of stuff, they're just not that keen <laughs> on that kind of stuff. So they're probably not going to want to uh, do it uh, as well. Now, the other aspect is that um, there's a, a way of overriding this, right? I mean, there's a way of overriding this. Um, so you could simply uh, override it. Uh, the other thing, too, is that if somebody really, really wants to use your gun, they'll just force you to put your finger on it, and they'll use your finger to pull the trigger. While it's attached to you or not, I don't know, but that can certainly happen. It's the old thing. It's like, you can't take this briefcase because it's handcuffed to my hand, unless you saw my hand off, in which case you can take the briefcase. I mean, these things they don't really tend to, um, to work out that way. So... Um, uh, and, of course, you can just get rid of the fail-safe and, and you sell it on the black market. And, of course, the criminals will just not use these things at all. I, I will tell you one area, though, wherein I would like some more significant tracking of, of weaponry to, to occur. See, the American government, as you're probably very well aware, 
as is the government, so as do the governments in Europe and, and other places. Well, they sell a lot of weaponry around the world. Now, I, for one, would really, really like it if this weaponry had some sort of tracking chip in it so people could figure out where the hell it ended up. It probably wouldn't work. It probably could be disabled or bypassed or something like that. But in my fantasy world, if I slip slip into my central planning alternative universe fantasy world, I would love it, love it to death if every piece of weaponry, every bullet, every piece of shrapnel uh, encased in, in shells, every tank, everything, everything, every jeep, everything that could conceivably be used in warfare that was sold by Western governments or any governments for that matter, I would really, really love for that stuff to be very, very well tracked because I would think it would be really shocking how many weapons used against Western powers are actually sold in the arms dealership from hell by Western powers. How many Americans are hearing the whistle of bombs made in America or hearing the wing of bullets made in America? So I would think that I'm, I'm a little less concerned, although it's pretty tragic, when children shoot people because idiots leave guns around. However, I'm a little more concerned about the sales of weaponry overseas. That's where I'd be a little bit more comfortable with RFID chips and GPS trackers and activated by whatever. You know, I mean, <laughs> you have to have a penis cast. You've got to get a boner and stick it in the mortar before you shoot it. I don't know. Mortar, shooter, boner, fucking 101. <laughs> I have no idea. But we, we that's where I think that this uh, kind of technology could be more productively employed. But, of course, it won't be. But, yeah, like, uh, shouldn't uh, half of the responsibility go to the uh, gun manufacturers or the dealerships so like uh, i just read here that 40 wait 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 hang on hang on why why i mean they sell these things with safeties you don't have (laughs) to load them right if there's no ammo in the gun i guess you could hit someone with it but the same thing could be true of a table lamp if there's no ammo in it and or the safety is on well, you really can't do much damage with it now, can you? So if people load the gun and turn the safety off and leave it around children, I don't see how the manufacturers are responsible for that. Still, it's like it's a possibility that it can be basically averted. It's like, well, yeah, oh, come on. I mean, <laughs> have you ever used a power drill? Let's, let's say, let's say <laughs> you, you leave the power drill by your telephone. The phone rings, and you pick up the power drill and drill through your own head. Hello? Oh, Oh, no. It's somehow the power drill's fault, the company that makes the power drill, because you you decided to drill yourself into becoming a Democrat because you couldn't figure out which was the phone. (laughs) Like, take, for example, cars. It's like... you got uh, some kind of a seatbelt flow. You got eight point three million vehicles uh, getting recommissioned. Like, uh, why is nothing done uh, like uh, on the same scale with guns? You know. Do Do you really think that that more litigation is the answer? Oh, not exactly litigation, but no. You know. Because I mean, why do you hate poor people so much? I don't understand. <laughs> I mean, you you understand that that when you hold manufacturers liable for absolute idiots using their products in unintended ways. Not only do you have to buy 
a ladder that looks like it has half the fucking library of Congress printed all over it. Do not put on ice. Do not put upside down. Do not do ballet on the top shelf. This top shelf is not a shelf. It's just a flimsy piece of metal. Do not stand on it. Do not place over the edge of a volcano. Do not operate on a UFO. Do not operate on the wing of a plane. Do like all because every single stupid person has done stupid things and sued people. So every time you say the manufacturer should be held responsible, you massively drive up the price of whatever it is they're manufacturing because they got to cover all their legal bills. And so when you drive the price of guns up, they become less available to law-abiding, peaceful citizens who are poor. Now, in general, I think it's crime that produces poverty, not poverty that produces crime because one of the poorest areas in the United States is the Appalachian Mountains populated by a lot of white people. Really not much crime there at all. But when you uh, are poor, you kind of probably want to have uh, uh, some method of defense, uh, whether it's iron bars in the window or a gun, because you live in a shitty neighborhood. Why? Because you're poor and you have to go where the property values are lower because you're willing to swallow terrible education for your children because that's the way things work. So if you want to hold the gun manufacturers responsible, you may save a couple of lives of idiots, but you're going to cost a lot of lives of poor people who otherwise would have been able to afford buying a gun, but can't because you want to protect the world from idiots. And you simply can't. Nothing can be made foolproof because fools are so inventive. Wow, I didn't really think about that one. But, well, uh, so uh, speaking about uh, tracking or GPS tracking, you know, uh, why exactly are people uh, so reluctant to apply any kind of tracking for uh, any kind of things, you know? It's like uh, people say, oh, I don't want anybody to see what I'm doing or whatever. It's like, uh, uh, to give an example, uh, you might have actually heard of this one, I think. Uh, so, like, back in the 90s... Uh, wait, wait, no, hang on. What are you talking about? People don't want to be tracked by who? Who, 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 no, the, who no, do no, they not no. want I to mean, be tracked by? I mean, uh, in general, like, uh, in tracking of uh, items, you know, like, uh, expensive items or whatever. It's like... Uh, uh, I don't, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Please help me. I was about to give an example. I was about to give an example, you know. So, uh, back in the 90s, uh, when Intel released uh, the Pentium 3 processor, uh, they had some sort of uh, uh, unique tracking information uh, for it. So, if it, uh, whatever happens with it, uh, you can track it down, like where it is. But uh, that was used uh, to, like, uh, target uh, computers with uh, malicious ads or whatever, you know. Since then, uh, such, an, uh, such a thing uh, was never implemented, you know. Uh, so... Uh, I I am working in a PC parts warehouse. You know, uh, it's like uh, we got uh, sometimes. All right, you you have thirty seconds to get to the point because <laughs> I don't still don't know what we're talking about, and I got to keep the show moving, brother. Please boil it down to the essence and deliver to me something I can eat. Yeah, like uh, uh, sometimes tracking would uh, uh, mitigate some of the losses. You know, if something gets lost or whatever, but people are uh, quite reluctant to implement it, like uh, the process, for, for example. Like, uh, 
Okay. Do you mean that people don't buy like tile or other places where you can put a little tracker on your wallet or your cell phone or your keys or something? Because I think they do a fairly, a fairly good business uh, for people. GPSs, of course, uh, um, you know, in cars or, or on phones are used continuously. The idea that people don't like being tracked to me is kind of ridiculous. I mean, you're tracked everywhere you go online. Netflix knows everything you watch. Hulu knows everything you watch. Amazon knows everything you've ordered. I mean, you used to just be able to go into a a library and take out a damn book. <laughs> you know, there was no central repository. Uh, but now everything that you do uh, online is tracked. And, and every time you have a cell phone, like John McAfee, uh, the guy who um, uh, is a security uh, expert, uh, founded um, uh, McAfee antivirus and uh, has come out against the idea that Russia did any kind of hacking. He uses an old flip phone because it's the one thing that can't be hacked. So uh, <laughs> I, you know, the idea that people don't like to be tracked, I mean, everything you do online is is tracked. And, and uh, you know, that there, there's even, you know, like Amazon Echo is uh, is if you have these devices like like Cortana or, or Siri, I think, uh, or Amazon Echo or all of these things where you can just say, you know, Amazon Echo, tell me uh, what the last score was of a cricket game uh, in, in Australia. Well, it's always listening to you. And it has to send some of what you say to a central server, as far as I understand it, because that's where they do their best voice recognition. So if, if you buy this stuff and you set it up to... Not, not so it's click to activate or touch to activate, but you have to – it's continually recording everything you say in your house. <laughs> you know mm. I mean? Um, I guess, I guess if, if, if the porn actress uh, asks for <laughs> – on the movie you're watching – asks for the score of a cricket game in Australia, I guess you're going to get that uh, along with your uh, hanging chad bondage or whatever's going on. And so uh, people are constantly, I mean, in fact, there's, there's a, a murder investigation, I think it's in the States, where the police are asking Amazon to hand over everything that might have been said around this Amazon Echo device, because they think that a person who died in the house that they may have planned, um, that this other people may have planned. So it's everywhere, everything you do, wow. everything you do. Look at Mark Zuckerberg, you see a picture of him. He's taped over the webcam stuff on his uh, notebook and taped over the mic input because that stuff can be activated uh, remotely. Uh, I mean, uh, I think that, that people, um, people don't seem to mind being, being tracked at all. They love all of the free stuff they get by allowing themselves to be tracked uh, and all of the convenience of allowing yourself to be tracked. I mean, in your GPS, it keeps a history uh, of where, where you've been. And um, you, you know, if you turn on that history, then it's kept there forever. And, you know, if someone steals your car and they turn on your GPS and they push home, well, now they know where you live as well. So um, people seem to be very comfortable uh, being uh, being tracked. And, I mean, there are a few people who, who freak out about it from time to time, I'm, I'm sure. And um, privacy is something that seems to have been largely thrown aside in the quest for, you know, the infinite oasis of convenience in the desert of we're mortal. So um, I, I think that people are quite comfortable being uh, tracked. I mean, e even the like you buy a car and you get these on call services where if you need help, um, you know, I, I, I lost my keys down a well. <laughs> you know, they they'll know where your car is. They can pinpoint it. They can unlock it remotely. And I mean. That, that, I mean, there's a lot of convenience. I mean, I, I'm not saying what's right or wrong. These are all, all trade-offs. In, in a free market, it would be a, a much simpler thing to do. But yeah, people are, are being tracked all the time. Uh, if you've got any kind of digital presence, you're being tracked all the time. And um, uh, uh, people, I mean, I don't think they genuinely know how much information is, is out there about them. And um, 
I think they just kind of blank that out for the convenience. Yeah, so basically where this stems from, I actually spoken to some uh, American gun owners. It's like, uh, yeah, they're on board with the RFID tag thing. But uh, when I mentioned the GPS tracking, they're like, they're like oh, no, I don't want to be tracked. It's like, I don't get it. Like, why do sometimes uh, uh, like law-abiding citizens uh, are afraid of being tracked? Like, it's basically for their own good it's like if uh, oh no hang on hang on hang on no no, no, no. I mean, I mean uh, hang on hang on no 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 you you can't just say stuff like that and expect oh. me to just go okay but what are you talking about are you saying that law-abiding citizens should be tracked for their own good by the government not by the government per se it's like uh, like well, what do you mean per se what per se means like i don't know i don't know what that means you know would you <laughs> like some water not per se well i don't know what the fuck you want anymore do you want a, a handful of water do you want water sprayed in your face do you want a cup with no water why uh yeah no but you know and and gun owners gun owners don't want central registries of who has guns because that they consider that to be a giant setup for the government's going to come and take their guns Right. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons they resist that stuff. But no, this idea that, I don't know, why do you care if you have nothing to hide? (laughs) First of all, there's no such thing as a law abiding citizen. People really, really need to understand this. There is no such thing as a law abiding citizen. Let me ask you this, my friend. Do you know all the laws in your country? Absolutely not. Since I, of course, not. since I, especially since I've been living here uh, like one and a half year, and I'm planning to move on soon. Yeah, yeah. So you don't know all the laws in your country. You don't know all the regulations in your country. You don't know all the tax laws in your country. It's impossible for any human being to be a law-abiding citizen. The law has become so complex, so top-heavy, so bureaucratic, so stuffed full of polysyllabic, citizen-ensnaring, life-choking bullshit. That there is no such thing as a law-abiding citizen. I mean, uh, I think it's Tom Woods who wrote something that said that, that basically the average American commits three felonies every day and doesn't even know it. Because the <laughs> yeah, common law is pretty simple. Common law said don't initiate force and keep your word. Okay, I can handle that. If I've kept my word, if I've kept my contracts and I haven't initiated force against anyone, I'm a law-abiding citizen. But the idea is like, well, well, if you're a law-abiding citizen, if you're on the right side of the law, what have you got to hide? Well, the reality is nobody's on the right side of the law. Nobody is on the right – someone just about everywhere could be gotten for something somehow. So the idea that, well, you know, you you got nothing to hide because you're a law-abiding citizen. <laughs> no. It's, I comply with all the rules in the Bible. It's like, no, no, you don't. It's impo- Some of them are contradictory, and, and it's impossible anyway. So, no, there's no such thing as a law-abiding citizen. And this idea that you're safe if you're tracked because, because don't worry, you're, you're totally on the right side of six billion uh, contradictory laws. No, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't believe that for a moment. So you mean to say that that kind of thing could never be uh, used for good purposes? I mean, well, I mean, if, it, good. if it's the government, then <laughs> no, it's most likely not going to be used for uh, for good purposes. So let me finish my thought. So uh, if uh, that thing was enacted, and if it would have been exploited, so uh, word would spread, so like uh, people would uh, work against it. But uh, still, if it, if implemented correctly. And uh, if it Wait, what do you mean implemented correctly? What does that mean? You mean if the government implemented tracking of citizens correctly? What do, you, what do you mean? You mean you want to give them that power and just cross your fingers and hope they use it well? How about you just don't give them that power and then you don't have to worry about it? 
Oh, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> I'm going to give some guy a random gun and hope that he uses it for good. It's like, why don't you just not give him a gun and then you don't have to track him and worry about whether he's using it for good. Just the government shouldn't have the power, of course, to track people. Government should be, if they're going to be anything, they should be completely passive and, and just sit there and wait for someone to come along with a criminal complaint. And then they should leap into action and deal proactively with someone who's violated the non-aggression principle, who's initiated force, or who's broken their contract. Uh, the government should just sit around picking their noses and playing uh, Tetris until someone comes along and says, dude, someone did something wrong. They leap into action, they deal with that, and then they go back to finish their levels. That's all they, but of course not. It's not what governments do, right? Now, you want to give power to a government, you know what's going to happen. You give power to a government, you're not going to be in control. Yeah, we're going to have how pretty that much, gets implemented uh, or how, yeah, you're not going to be in control. And and you, you say, well, we want the government to, to do X. Well, then the government starts saying we're going to do X. And then everyone who's affected by X starts to really get involved. And they start to lobby. And they start to change things. And they start to get things their way. And they and, and it's, it's passed way beyond your control. You will never, ever, ever be in charge of how a government implements your particular vision of what you want. You know, let's have universal basic income. Okay, <laughs> you're going to give the government that power and then all the special interest groups, all the powerful people who aren't you and who aren't me, they're going to get in there and they're going to make the government do what they want to do. And then the media is going to twist it and portray it in one way and twist it another way. And then they're going to appeal to women's sentimentality. And, you know, and then by the time it actually rolls out, it's got nothing to do with anything you ever envisioned, but it's too late to take back. No take backsies, no mulligans when it comes to state power. They get it. And you're out there with a nine iron raised high in a lightning sky. Mm. Yeah, sure. So I mean, the government is supposed to the government is supposed to protect its data, <laughs> as is Yahoo. Yahoo! You've got all the data you want because they just apparently have. Um, I think they have that kind of security, which is um, you know, like in airports, they have those. Uh, uh, little ribbons that just sort of hang there between things. You just unclip them and walk through if you want. I mean, if, you know, that seems to be how it works there. They can't They can't keep people out of the Defense Department. They can't keep people out of the State Department. I mean, I mean it's ridiculous, right? So um, the, the, you're going to hand over all this power. You're never going to have any control about how it gets implemented and how it and, – and, and the way it – comes out like i'm sure there are people who were interested in obamacare to begin with and said yeah sure you know if we make everyone buy insurance it's going to bring down the insurance price for everyone and that sounds great and, and we really shouldn't deny people for pre-existing conditions and and blah 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 blah. and yeah but then by the time this frankincense uh sorry this frankenstein mess lurches up from the electrical table and, and eats the good doctor i mean it's nothing to do with anything that anyone envisioned because it's been so mutilated and mashed up by all the special interests which we have no control over um that uh it's unrecognizable and um i just really want people to remember that you may have some idea about how you want the government to implement things that's never ever ever how it's going to go and it, what the government finally implements is going to have almost nothing to do with what you wanted and it's almost always going to be at your expense all right i'm going to move on to the next caller but thank you so much uh, for the call um i appreciate it and please if you have guns you know i'm not even going to say it, it it's too ridiculous nobody who does that listens to this all right up next we have david david wrote in and said i live in sweden and a year ago my family got a call from the swedish rescue service and offered us what I call a deal with the devil. The deal was for us to house up to 30 refugees for the most ridiculous sum of money I have ever seen. 
This was also during a period where we tried to sell our hotel and realized that my family were getting not the kind of deal that we were hoping for. When you have been given the deal with the devil, will you take it and sacrifice your soul for wealth or reject it and keep your soul but continue suffering? That's from David. Hello, David. How you doing? Hello, Stefan. How's it going? Good. I, I, I know you didn't mean seen. I just I love the image that they roll up with a wheelbarrow full of gold. Thirty pieces of you know, like yeah, hold these ingots, take the migrants and the ingots, right? Well, yeah. So, so did you mind giving me some sense? Are we talking six figures, seven figures? I mean, what in U.S. dollars, roughly? What what were you being offered? Oh, three times uh, the price. Um, oh, of the of the hotel itself? Yes. All right, so we're talking millions here, right? Yeah, we're talking millions. Um, Millions of dollars to house up to 30 refugees. And and for how long did they say? Well, they said uh, they said it like this. So during during the autumn of 2015, uh, 160,000 migrants poured into Sweden. And um, before that even occurred, there was a housing crisis. And this made the housing crisis even worse. So the government was desperate to find temporary housing for all these migrants coming in. So what they did was that they looked at the hotel business and saw that they had the capacity to house all of these people coming in, at least temporarily. So that's when the Swedish Rescue Service decided to contact among um, my family because we are hotel owners, um, and offered us this deal. So what they offered was $350 per night per child. A child? Were they children? Well, they, they said this. So they called are, them... Are they the kind, of kind of children who, who, who shave the backs of their knuckles and sing basso profundo in the local choir? This is choir? what they said. Um, Syrians were not even part of the deal. They offered, they only had um, Afghani, Afghani people between the age of 13 and 26, whereas about 70% of them were boys. So Afghani teenage boys, basically, and up to 30 of them, uh, where they said $350 per night per child. And they defined them as children because, well... Because uh, that sounds nicer, I guess. Oh yeah, yeah. So okay, so three hundred and six, three hundred and fifty bucks, right? Yeah. Instead, and so it, hang on, hang on, hang on. I gotta sort of get this one sorted out of my head. Oops, no, I don't want to turn on sticky keys. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, three hundred and fifty times three hundred and sixty-five. So you're getting one hundred and twenty-seven thousand seven hundred and fifty per child times thirty. $3.832 million and $500 yeah. per year. So per close year. to $4 million per year. Yeah, that's Did hot. you have to supply them with iPad Pros or, or MacBook Pros in, in, in order for that? The quality of the room didn't even matter. That's why the, they offered so high <laughs> because they offered the, this, uh, this price for basically all hotels, no matter their, um, their value. Okay, so I mean, some municipalities 
they offered even double the price, so 700 per child per night. Well, and this, of course, shows you how desperate the whole program is, right? Yeah, because you can't live in Sweden without proper housing. I mean, <laughs> uh, good luck uh, setting up a tent during uh, midwinter. You know, that's not going to happen. You know, time was running short. It was autumn. It was November or whatever. And winter was coming, right? So they were really, really desperate and trying to find... Where is Sweden getting the money for this? Are they are they just borrowing like crazy? I mean, is this all just one big LARPing as charity while you're actually just selling off the next generation? I mean, at the moment, where is Sweden getting the money for this kind of crap? At the moment, the tax um, the taxes haven't been uh, felt as strongly, but um, Sweden they haven't raised taxes to pay for this, right? Not from what I've noticed. Uh, okay, so hang on just a sec. So I'm sorry to to ask you a question and then ask you another one. So let's just say we'll stay at 350. How many um, migrants you, you said had come in? 120,000? During 2015, there was 160,000. All right. So now everyone didn't get a hotel to live in, a temporary hotel. Some did get proper. But they had to find it from some someone somewhere, right? Yeah. They, so they, I mean, they didn't come in with a lot of money to pay for stuff, right? Sure. They, but uh, the state also has a lot of state-run hotels, for example, that were um, – forced to house them in some cases. So, uh, sorry, how it was how much, how many again? Hundred and... Um, 160,000 migrants. Okay, so that's um, 58 million a day, like to, to, to house. And and this is, the, this, this is what you offered, that include meals? Well, they gave the responsibility of cooking their meal and maybe providing a little bit of entertainment while they're there. And that was included in the 350? It was included. That was a uh, responsibility. Yeah, so we're talking over 21 billion a year. Yeah. And currently it is financed mostly through taking debt because the debt in Sweden was relatively low compared to other e uh, European nations. It was at around, you know, 40% of the GDP. So it had well, they, they fixed that now. Because l let me ask you this, David. What could be a better potential plan than inviting huge numbers of low-skilled, probably low-IQ people into your country, housing them in unsustainable ways, and then running out of money because you took on too much debt? That's just basically, I just pulled the pin out of the grenade, and I'm rolling it a little ways down the future. Well, uh, it's what happens in these strange situations, but um, desperate times. Um, a lot of it has to do, I think. No, it's, it's not what happens. It what, it's what happens when, when women vote sentimentally. Well, I mean, I don't know what it, I don't know the exact numbers in, in Sweden, but everything that I've looked at, um, the women, it's the women who are voting for taking the migrants in. Sure, but also there's the, um, the human rights argument that uh, we need to help people because it's a human right to um, accept them is also a very strong argument in Sweden that uh, convinces a lot of people, when they're, especially when they're Syrians, uh, to um, help them. No, but what, what is helping them? No, you don't help people by putting them into an utterly unsustainable situation. You don't help people by bringing them into a culture that's foreign, into a language that's foreign, into a religion that's foreign, into a culture that's foreign, into a place where they won't be able to get jobs, where they won't be able to settle down and have normal lives, where there aren't enough women for them to date. I mean, you don't help people 
that way. You, you help them by stopping bombing their home countries. Uh, you help them by uh, offering, if you want, private charity can offer to resettle people in other Middle Eastern countries where they've got compatible cultures and languages and religions and, and climates and all. It doesn't help people at all. It doesn't help people at all. All you're doing is satisfying. It's virtue signaling. People just want to feel like they're doing something good and something right. And, um, uh, but it's nothing to do with actually uh, helping them. Uh, and, and where is how is creating this kind of massive, unfunded liability? There's no money to pay for this. So how is it helping people who are living in Sweden to give them massive debt Massive unfunded liabilities, massive potential cultural incompatibilities, massive increases in crime. How is that helping the Swedes, just out of curiosity? You know, the people who actually lived there and paid the taxes to build up this whole damn system. Well, that's where it, 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 that's why I call it to deal with the devil, because you accept all this fast wealth coming directly from taxes or from the state at the expense of the locals so you know the um i i want to focus on how it affects you know not just the hotels but uh, a community as a whole on especially on how businesses are affected and that's something that's not uh, been uh, talked about uh, a whole lot and that is where i have a lot of insight so in my region where we have our hotel, it's a tourist region, tourist attraction. <laughs> well, not, not for long, but okay. No, not for long. Yeah, sure. And what happens is that when you take in refugees into a hotel, they can't, um, they can't house uh, for um, uh, tourists and customers at the same time. You have to choose between being a refugee home or a hotel. You can't have Wait, both are you at the saying same time. that there aren't a lot of people who want to shack up next to uh, a couple of dozen migrants? If you do, then uh, they'll be very heavily um, unsatisfied and write bad reviews, and your hotel value is going to go down the drain. So, I'm sorry. How do you? How in Sweden do you say cultural enrichment? Because that doesn't seem like cultural enrichment to me. Stop with the memes, okay? Um, <laughs> it's too much. Me uh, memes, memes. That's all we've got. If we stop with the memes, I, I hesitate to think what the next weapon's going to be. But it ain't going to be something you type on the internet. But go on. All right. Um, yeah, I understand. It's not a lot. It's not good in cultural enrichment if they even have a culture uh, when they come here. Because they come pretty empty-handed. Um, they have a culture, though. But they come empty-handed. You know, they, they... It's a culture of conquest, but go on. All right, fine. Um, now, in a tourist region, you heavily depend upon customer service. You depend upon a shop that you're providing some services that people are able to... Uh, uh, people are like, and uh, they want to go there... Repeatedly, you know, if German tourists come one year, they want to come another year if they... Uh... Yeah, I'm sorry. I hate to interrupt, David. We have a very smart audience. You don't need to go over Business 101. Yes, people want to come and visit tourist areas and they want good service so that they'll come back. Okay, so what let's happens keep going. Then, yeah, so what happened to the hotels that decided to keep um, refugee homes is that uh, the number of customers, the number of tourists started to decline in some areas. And that puts, um, that gives the shop owners and a lot of people who own stores uh, lower revenue 
and in some cases it also increases their taxes so well sure so so what happens is if you decide not to take refugees but your neighbor does you might as well end up taking refugees because you're not getting any tourists yeah yeah um so we we, we got this offer um the amount of money, you know, we really fought fought over this and wondered maybe we should take them in, but but um, after, because I listened to your show back then, I brought up and influenced my parents, um, and it brought up some really important points. Like they are not even Syrians; they're they're coming from a completely different country, um, and we finally decided not to take in um, for any refugees to and. You know, we live in a village of 300 people, 300 people taking in 30 Afghan boys would be a population increase of 10 percent. And there's weren't there some girls. I thought you said some of them were girls as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm generalizing. Yeah. OK. Um, but, um, you know, there's nothing here for them. There's there's no high school nearby. There's no park. There's no. um there is nothing for them to do during the day. So people were really, really concerned that if they were to take them in, that they would cause a lot, a lot of trouble, increase crime, which is incredibly low in, in this countryside. Um, so we did get, we did actually get threat calls after rumors had passed that we received this deal. We received two threat calls that said, if you do this deal, you're no longer welcome in the village. You're no longer welcome in the town. Well, and that's one of the nicer responses. That's ostracism, which is perfectly peaceful. I mean, we've had, uh, I've, I've read reports of people who just set fire to the hotels or set fire to the to whatever, the schools where the migrants are going to be housed. The rumor spread to the insurance companies and they gave us a call quite quickly and said that <laughs> if you do this deal, you know, we're, we're going to immediately, you know, withdraw your insert insurance because and that's so funny you know and it's so tragic that there are all these facts around that the propaganda merchants simply won't recognize yeah you know if if um if having migrants come to your culture your country is, is such a wonderful and enriching experience then you know you you should have they should have said you know what migrants are wonderful um we're going to be reducing your premiums because you know they're peaceful and they're productive and they're going to help out and they're going to maintain the property and they're going to do things nicely and it's basically uh, everything's going to turn into a well-tended bonsai japanese garden of infinite perfection uh, but no i mean the, all of these cues are out there the insurance company's like whoa we can't insure you if you have migrants because diversity is our strength you know in 2013, that was the that was when we bought our first hotel ever. You know, they, we had zero experience in the business. Oh we, man, I just wanted to say, bad luck with the timing, man. <laughs> no, but um, 2013 was a fairly good timing. Um, you know, market wise, and we uh, we saw great potential in buying what what I've referred to as a freaking shipwreck. Um, it had potential. It had beauty. Oh. But we put so, our sorry. So you, you you're sitting on an asset because it can generate people up to four million dollars a year by housing the migrants, right? Yeah. So if you sell the hotel, somebody's going to say, "Well, I can afford to pay X amount of dollars for it because I'm getting at least until the <laughs> until the hotel is is broken up and sold for parts on the black market, I can make four million a year out of it." Yeah, I'm coming to that part as well. 
but uh, I just want to give a little background to what are um, why we um, so deeply care about this business and the locals as well. Um, you know, we came we came into this business, you know, with zero experience, and we saw great potential to make something happen and to give jobs and opportunity to um, you know our friends and family in uh, our communities. And it did happen. You know, we we found um, quite a lot of success. You know, it was an explosive start rather than a um, zombie start. Um, and, but the lifestyle that changed during owning a hotel plus owning other businesses and having a family to take care of and, pro- and so on. You know, it, my parents were working 80 hours a week almost all year round on average. You know, the, the work was insane. So it put a lot, a lot of pressure to work in our hotels. And we realized that after two years that we cannot keep this up. We have to do something. We have to change our life. And that is when we started to put up the hotel for sale during summer 2015, because we couldn't keep up this 80 hour per week lifestyle or all, all year round. Why? Um, I don't understand. I mean, if you're a good business person, you should not be working 80 hours a week because you should hire people, right? Well, we didn't find... Otherwise, otherwise you're not running a viable business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, it was in the beginning, we had little experience in contact. So it was hard to get high competent people who were also living in the countryside and nearby who we could yeah, well, it's hard to find competent people as a whole. That's the biggest challenge of business isn't finding customers. It's finding people who aren't going to screw up your whole business. So we did find a lot of, you know, teenagers who were able to uh, supply the quantity and we were, you know, just give them a few days uh, guiding and then they'll be able to work uh, doing some basics, uh, basic things. But there was so much... Um, there was so much decision-making in the early stages of a hotel that's a shipwreck into making it uh, to reinvest and to make um, good decisions to increase the value of the property and so on. So, you know. Okay, I'm, I, I, much though I love the pamphlet of your business history, you've got to get to the next yeah, point yeah. quick, please. So we, we put it up for sale. And what we noticed among the sellers was that we found two groups of sellers. Uh, no, uh, buyers, I mean, buyers. Now, one group was coming from, well, a little bit shady. They were um, urban, richer people who often had a first-generation migrant background that wanted to buy the hotel for three times its actual value. And where were they getting their money from? I guess, were they successful business people or what happened? Um, From the looks of it... Saudi Arabia! Sorry, go on. From the looks of it... um, some of them were um, highly educated. Some of them were successful be- business people, but they were first gen- But they tended to be first generation migrants from uh, Middle East, and some were from Russia as well. They didn't live nearby as well. They didn't come from the local community. They came from far away, you know, Stockholm or Gothenburg, and then traveled all the way down to here to this countryside just to buy a hotel three times its value. Well, sure. I mean, it's a, a bunch of Muslims who want to buy a hotel to invite other Muslims to come into a non-Muslim land, right? That's what we noticed. And that was sure. what we saw. They're like, oh, no, no. This isn't, this isn't a big mystery. I mean, <laughs> you just have to read the text, but go on. This is, 
th this is where we saw that no, this is not good. We know we wanted to sell to the hotel to someone who would continue to run it as a hotel, and we couldn't find those people. You know, there was always something lacking. It was the experience, the distance, or uh, the liquidity and money, or um, maybe just the strength and age to um, work. Um, All right. So then, what happened? So we decided to keep the hotel. And what happened after that was that our okay, okay, sorry, sorry. I, 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 again, if we can get to the moral question, this this tour through the history of the hotel um, is is not hugely relevant to, to the. There's a philosophy show, not a business plan review show. So if you can get to the moral question, I'd really appreciate it. I'm enjoying the conversation. I just want to make sure we get to the gist of it. We doubled down, and uh, we doubled down uh, when we because um, we noticed that. We were, um, oh, how should I put us? Um, we had to double down in the, the business. Uh, we were stuck. Um, I, well, actually, the, the moral question is um, would you offer, would you receive this offer or not? Would you take it? Would I have taken the offer? No, of course not. You would not. All right. No. No, um, it's government money for something that uh, I would certainly have questions as to the long term um, propriety of the decision. Uh, so, no, I mean, and, and I'm not saying this like, oh, I just, you know, I'm not saying it would be easy. I mean, you see that pile of money in front of you and it can um, you can say, well, you know, we'll go start over in some other place or whatever. Right. Or, or you know, this place is doomed. So let's move on. But um, no, I mean, I've been offered not, you know, always that. <laughs> amount of money but i've certainly been and i've talked about this before in the show the, the temptations that have been sort of offered uh have been fairly extensive and um yeah yeah and you know your show really helped a lot you, you gave me the the facts reason and um points i was able to tell my parents to influence their decision to keep the hotel but not only that you know our competitors were selling were putting their uh, hotel at at sale and they doubled down we we bought a hotel instead um uh, because uh, they were just neighbors to us and uh, if they became refugee home our, our hotel would be worth zero um so i i wanted to say this to you steph that um your um, your shows has really uh paid off in some areas and um, have influenced some real life decisions that have um, affected, uh, have made positive effect, uh, effects on uh, some communities. And I really, really appreciate that. But in not taking this money, and you can't find a buyer that you want to work with, I mean, aren't you, aren't you at risk of losing the investment in the hotel? It's not just the plus four mil a year, it's the potential minus if you can't find a seller you're comfortable with. Yeah. And we instead bought a hotel just to make sure that um, the, the hotels in the region that were uh, put up to sale wouldn't get bought by people who wanted to transform them into refugee homes. So we doubled down um, and we worked our asses off. And something interesting happened during the season. Because there were so many hotels in Sweden that uh, got completely out of business because they were doing something else instead, we were getting more customers. 
Wait, sorry, because they were taking migrants? What do you mean they were doing something else instead? Um, the hotels that become refugee homes can't house tourists. Okay, got it. So, sorry, I just wanted to make sure I understood what that meant. So, so, so more people are coming to you, right? Yeah, so the high, during the high sure. season, there was reduced competition, and that meant extra revenue for staying as a hotel when others did not. Right. So, right. It actually, yeah, because people are looking to go to a place uh, where they can have uh, tourism without migrants, right? Exactly. And, and you would be that, that place. Exactly. And since our uh, region so heavily relies on tourism, I looked it up. Um, we have taken below the national average uh, in refugees in this area. And that has a lot to do with private people making, pri- uh, making decisions not to take them in and just continue to work their asses off with higher taxes instead. And in some cases, it paid off. And now things are looking better for um, the region as a whole, actually. Um, and we are, have uh, found potential good experienced buyers who uh, might take it over till the next season. So that's some, that's some input I wanted to make. Um, no, and I wanted to mention, too, that the, the, what's fascinating about all of this, and I knew some of this, but it's great to have it so laid out numerically, David, is if I commit a crime and then I bribe the judge to be found not guilty, people don't think I'm not guilty. People think I'm probably guilty of two things. Number one, the crime, and number two, the crime of bribery. Yeah. So the fact that the government is funneling such insane amounts of money at getting people to take these migrants in means that people are being drugged by money. They're, they're being dazed by cash. This is not something that is democratic. And I mean, they're stealing from the future to bribe the present to get their way in the moment. Yeah. And that just means that there are then two crimes. Uh, one is, of course, pursuing a policy of wildly, wildly significant demographic alteration in a country. That's number one. And, um, and number two, bribing everyone to go along. I mean, these are two uh, crimes, in my view, yeah. that uh, are, are extremely significant. But the one kind of cancels out the other in the same way that I get to walk free if I bribe the judge. But uh, it is, um, it's not democracy. If you're just paying people $4 million a year to house 30 migrants, you can't possibly say, well, you know, the people aren't that upset about the migrants. It's like, well, that's because it's like, well, the, the prostitute must really love me. She wants to have sex with me and it only cost me $500. You know, it's like, no, she, she wants to not have sex with you $500 worth, which is why you have to give her the $500 for her to have sex with you. And um, the Swedes don't want the migrants to the tune of $4 million a year for one hotel, which is why you have to pay them that amount to take them in or some portion thereof. Yeah. And um, I remember, you know, my parents, you know, they really felt the disgust, the real, the real filth in accepting the money because it wasn't you were not providing uh, any services that uh, increased the the quality of living, the, the the living standards. You know, you you didn't provide anything. There was no passion in it. You know, the passion of running a business just died off with uh, accepting these and working um, with these migrants. And, and and the bribery with regards to immigration. 
is something that that can't be overemphasized. It really needs people need to understand this. And I've, I've made this case before, but there are um, Muslims, of course, who want to join the West, who want to come to Western countries because they want to be able to practice their belief system free of coercion, free of uh, a the- theocratic state. Well, and I can understand that. I mean, it, I don't think it's particularly virtuous to be forced to do stuff. It's much better if you choose to follow your values voluntarily rather than out of fear of of being lashed or beheaded or beaten up by roving gangs or whatever. And so, yeah, there are people who want to come. And, and I think those people can do relatively well, at least for the first generation in the society, because they're there and they're choosing and this, that, and the other. But when you bribe people to come to your country, for sure, they're not coming for the values. They're coming for the money. Almost exclusively. And we know that because the migrants choose in general to try and get to places like Germany where they can get the most welfare money. So you're bringing people in not because they want the values that the country represents, but because they want the money that you're giving to them. So you would not assume that these people have any patriotic loyalty to Western values any more than you would assume that a prostitute loves you and wants to bear your children. You're paying her to love you, and they're paying people to come to the country. There's no loyalty in that. The only loyalty is to the money. And when the money runs out, as it will, because the debts are going up and up and up, when the money runs out, I think we'll very quickly find out where the real loyalties are. Yeah, and that is the moral The moral question is that this all, this massive bribery just to take him in. And, you know, the... Um, most of hotel owners are actually Swedes, so they had to offer this bribery to Swedes to take him in. Um, so the money didn't just go to the migrants themselves. It went to some uh, certain owners um, and individuals as well. Who uh, And it went to the bad owners, I would assume, the people who weren't doing very well, who wanted this money because it's... It's, it's communistic demographic redistribution of, of genetics and wealth. And... Um, yeah, it is. Uh, it is incredibly tragic. Democracy is not a great system overall. I'm not a statist. But at least at least if you are if you get the bill for what you want in the here and now, at least you can make a bit more of an informed decision. But when the money is simply borrowed and massive amounts of bribery rain down upon the general population in order for the government to get its way, that's not democracy. That is utter corruption. That is utter bribery uh, and uh, immoral and would be perfectly immoral. If, if you want a government official to do things your way and you offer them money to do so, that's illegal. But if the government wants you to do things their way and offers you money, well, that's just policy. And, and of course, this hypocrisy is, I think, becoming increasingly clear. Yeah. Accepting these migrants to our village, if we did it and if we accepted um, our competing hotel that we bought, their deal as well, because they were offered the same deal, but with 20 Afghan boys. So if we took both of them, that would be 50. And if we did that, you know, th- yeah, that would we're be like close to six mil, six million dollars a year. Yeah, that's insane. guaranteed. You know, one of the you don't need to advertise because they're there. You don't need to worry about whether they're going to pay or not or whether their visa is going to bounce or whether, you know, I mean, I guess you have to worry about insurance, but you don't even have to worry that much because they can't leave. They have no choice. Yeah. And th- right. Th- so if, if the if the uh, grounds deteriorate and the pool doesn't work and the plumbing is, un- is spotty, well, as a hotel owner, that would be the death knell of your business. But when you're being paid by the government and people are forced to be there, it doesn't matter. You can just let things go to hell and you still get paid. And the deal had um, um, a few questionable things as well because they could not specify <laughs> how long they were supposed to stay there. And you could but they not- don't care. No, they have no plan. There's no end game for any of this. 
There's no end game. Uh, there, there is merely let us satisfy the sentimentality of the female voters in the here and now and let us make sure the left wing press doesn't attack us for being racists, uh, even though, of course, it's not a race. So um, there's, nothing, there's, no, there's no plan here. There's just this massive desperation to avoid being viewed in any negative way by women in the media. Uh, and again, I'm generalizing. There's lots of women. Ingrid Carlquist has been on the show. Lots of women who are against it and a lot of men cucked out to the planet Neptune who are, I guess, Uranus, um, who, who want them. But it's just very much generalization. But generalizations have some validity when they're backed up by statistics. So, yeah, it's politicians wanting to appease the female vote and wanting to appease the media who will roundly attack them uh, if they um, – say, you know, if we really want to help these people, we can help 12 of them in the Middle East for every one we bring here. So let's be really intelligent and help them where they live rather than bring them where they can't really succeed. Yeah. And we could not withdraw from this deal as well. We couldn't sue yeah. them if they refused us, uh, refused to give the money over in return for offering the houses, uh, housing, food and protection. And there was no renewal, right? You say, well, after a year, we'll figure out if we want to do it the year after. I mean, you, you signed, you've signed your future away too, right? I mean, they're there until it's a hole in the ground, right? Yeah, exactly. We, we would be stuck with them if they, um, if they found no uh, permanent place to put them at because it was just supposed to be temporary. But we noticed that, you know, this was a really bad deal. Right. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to mention uh, about this? I'm so ready to move on to the next caller. I appreciate the call. You did. Um, you did influence this decision. Um, you did. Yeah. The information you put out in the videos have made a real effect in uh, improving some uh, counties and regions. And well, I appreciate that. And I also wanted to say to you and your family, what an incredibly noble um, and, and brave and, and powerful and courageous and hard decision. To, to make a massive praise and props to what you guys have, have chosen to do. That is, you know, it, it's easy in theory to say, oh, I'd never, you, you get that amount of money dangled in front of you um, when you're facing a potential liability of, it's not just, well, you know, maybe the hotel's worth a couple of million, you might lose some of this. So it's not just the four million plus, it's maybe the couple of million minus. So it's a big, big gap. And uh, until you get that kind of stuff dangled in front of you, it's really hard to know um, what it's like to face that kind of decision. But it sounds like you guys acquitted yourself with enormous uh, honor and uh, dignity and uh, virtue. And I just really wanted to um, submit my respect yeah. for your consideration. Yeah, we worked our asses off just to keep this place going. And we uh, we keep we are still keeping the hotels and we think we've found some um good people who are able, who have more experience in the business who will continue to run it after they've taken over so right. Okay, well, thanks very much. I appreciate that. Um, do give us a drop. Uh, drop us a line. Let us know how things are going in a while. I'm certainly curious. And uh, thanks so much for the call. It's always great to have this uh, illumination thrown on, on these challenges. So, uh, uh, all right, let's move on to the next You're call. You're welcome. All right, up next we have John. John wrote in and said, I'm a 20-year-old demon. I mean, straight, white, Trump-voting man currently living in Chicago, Illinois. As a student, comedian, entrepreneur, and childcare worker, I've had nearly the full range of experiences the liberal haven has to offer. Dealing with the DePaul-Milo riot, watching my pro-Trump comedian friend get banned from comedy shows and bullied, I've been paid under minimum wage to watch abused children with employers who refuse to do anything to help the kids. My girlfriend's brother and our friend have been mugged just outside where we live, 
and our college tries to push the social justice agenda frequently. I've had more negative experiences with this city than I can count. The recent torture incident was sickening, and I've seen college radicals from all around, but especially young black Chicagoans, continue to push white privilege as the cause of the insanity. I would like to discuss how to make a difference in these environments, both at the cultural or grassroots level, and how Trump can help these cities who don't even seem to want his help. I'm trying to start a business and continue to debate and speak up wherever I reasonably can. What else can be done? That's from John in Chicago. All right, John, uh, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good today, Stefan. How are you doing? Um, all right. Have you been following? So this is, of course, this um, young man, man-child, this 18-year-old who was um, held and uh, and tortured by two black men and two black women and uh, the initial information that i got was was he was kidnapped now they're charged being charged with kidnapping him um they uh we just found out today they're being held without bail of course and um they face hate crime kidnapping unlawful restraint and battery charges in their <laughs> alleged role in the attack which they live streamed and they live streamed on facebook to like sixteen thousand people or sixteen thousand people at one point were watching and they, this went on for half an hour facebook is supposed to pull this stuff down right away when people complain but uh, it just went on and on either people weren't complaining which is horrifying or they were and facebook wasn't doing much about it i don't know <laughs> what what to, to think but um yeah apparently the um uh, the, the the boy um, the 18 year old white man who suffers from ADHD apparently in schizophrenia. Um, he's friends, right. With one of the suspects, Jordan Hill. And uh, I think his mom dropped him off uh, at a McDonald's to, for a sleepover. And, um, I think there was a stolen van involved and Hill became angry because the victim's mother said, Hey, where called and said, Hey, where's my son? You know, cause, cause who wouldn't be enraged at that? Right. And then they took him to some third floor apartment, as you know, in uh, Chicago, uh, bound and gagged, beaten over several days by two males and two females, forced to drink toilet water, scalped. Oh, chunks of his scalp. Yeah. yeah. Was... They, they flicked cigarette ashes into his uh, wounds. And um, according to reports, uh, Hill said, uh, called the mom and said, it'll, it'll cost you 300 bucks to get your son back. And uh, he, he, he escaped. Right, so Tuesday, um, there was some downstairs neighbor. I guess they were torturing this guy forever. Some downstairs neighbor was complaining about the noise. And then they went down and the two women kicked in this downstairs neighbor's door and I guess had a confrontation and stole some stuff on, on the way out. But while everyone was distracted with that, the uh, young man managed to uh, escape and, and was found in freezing temperatures, of course, uh, in virtually no clothing. And um, it, it took forever uh, for the police to get anything out of the poor guy because he was, he was completely terrified. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but I got to tell you, man, I mean, looking at pictures of these guys, maybe in my perception is, quote, colored by the fact that I know what they did. But seeing pictures of these men and, and women, 
I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that it's a very wise parenting decision to say, yeah, go for a sleepover. These, these people are great. No, not at all. I mean, I think the um, one of the few saving graces about the situation is that at least we're seeing the uh, the hate crime uh, label being finally applied evenly. But other than that, there there's. Absolutely- well, but I don't know if it I mean, if it wasn't for the Internet, do you think it would have been? But it was the internet that that I I think it's potential that the internet and and social media and and activists um, may have moved the needle on on that. Oh, certainly. I think it um, the internet has helped out with a lot of things like this, like with Jordan Peterson up where you guys are. He'd probably not have a job right now if it wasn't for so many people writing in about it. But um, this whole incident is just really upsetting, and it's. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with the laws in Illinois, but I believe in some states, mentally handicapped people um, aren't um, always eligible to even vote. So the fact that in this video we see them yelling, fuck white people and fuck Donald Trump, as if the political affiliation is somehow justifying this, I mean, when this man might not have even been able to vote. And Well, I wonder, see, I wonder... I wonder where they might have got the impression that all white people support Donald Trump, who is a racist. <laughs> I wonder. See, I don't, I don't yeah. think, I, you know, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know these people. Looking at what they did, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not, the, it's not Bond villain type evil intelligence to live stream your crimes. I mean, that's just so unbelievably dumb. Evil, of course. The evil is the action, the dumb is the broadcasting it. I don't think they're sitting there saying, well, this guy, you know, he doesn't seem that bright, but I bet you he voted. They've been told over and over and over by the mainstream media that Donald Trump is a racist, that Donald Trump um, uh, is, is Donald Trump's supporters are white people who are racists. So, of course, you, you tell people who don't perhaps have the widest scope of intellectual abilities, you tell them over and over and over again, Donald Trump, literally Hitler, literally a fascist, literally KKK, David Duke, literally, right? And you tell, and and, and white people are so racist, basket of deplorable, they're all racist and sexist and homophobic, and they all support Donald Trump because they hate minorities, right? Well, what happens when you keep filling the air with such poisonous lies? You get a really you actually get the opposite effect. You get anti-white racism is what I've at least seen and what I've experienced. And No, it's the anti-white racism is, is what's being said. Donald Trump is a racist. And the only reason that white people support Donald Trump is because white people are all racists. That is, that is the result isn't anti-white racism. That is anti-white racism. Oh, well, then the result is going to be more and more of these hate crimes. More no, and the more... result is violence. Yeah. Violence. Yeah, of course. When, when you say that, that, uh, that this person is a, is a fascist and 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 Hitler and and is going like is going to just like unleash the the, the legions of hell on on everyone who's not. I mean, of course, you're going to escalate hysteria and and drama and opposition and aggression. And yeah, I just did an interview with um, Professor Wright, who uh, is talking about how he, it's, it's a very good interview to watch. Um, uh, and uh, he's talking about yeah, people on the left. Um, are violent, you know, in general, right? There's an association, there's a tendency. The more left you go, the more violence you get. And the more right you go, the less violence you get, the more conformity with social norms and with the laws you get. 
And um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the mainstream media, um, in trying to win power for Hillary Clinton, completely and totally demonized Donald Trump and Donald Trump supporters. And when you completely dehumanize and demonize an entire group, an entire race, do not be shocked when these kinds of things happen. You can pretend to be shocked if you want, but... Uh, yeah, and what's, uh, what's particularly um, upsetting, I really wish, I'm sure almost everyone who's watching this really wishes that you weren't correct, that there wasn't this anti-white racism bleeding into violence and hate crimes and things. But uh, I've been talking to black Chicagoans. I've been kind of following the reactions to this event pretty closely on social media. And I do quite literally see people saying things like, oh, well, you know, when you vote for a fascist, if, if you're still going to defend them by saying they were mentally ill or, or whatever, th awful things like that. And it's, they are in fact using, uh, all white people are voting for Donald Trump and Donald Trump is literally Hitler. That is in fact a justification for this. And that's, it's disgusting. I wish you weren't right, but you are. Oh yeah. And I mean, this is, this is, um, this is going to continue until people start listening to reason. I mean, yeah, and, this um, is why, you know, what I do and, and what others do in this area is so important because the alternative to what we do is, is these kinds of escalation, this kind of escalation and this kind of uh, things just getting worse and worse, right? I mean, there's a report that says one of CNN's reporters was caught laughing and smiling while viewing the Facebook uh, live stream torture video of this disabled white man. Oh, Jesus. I mean, they, she thought that, that they were still showing the video, but they were instead showing her and wow. uh, laughing at it. Wow. And these are the people who run the, are trying to run the narrative, who, who are trying to make all of this, uh, this go down. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, the media is, is very extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. Yeah. Well, I guess that, that gets to kind of the crux of my question, which is in an ideal world, you could simply, you know, prevent, uh, present evidence, present facts and, and speak logically and with evidence and people would then be able to listen to that. But we have th this sort of emotional elephant in the room that's kind of commanding large amounts of people to act, believe and vote in certain ways. And I try to speak with uh, providing sources, providing statistics whenever I can. But um, I guess specifically with this most recent torture event, I've I've tried to reach out to a lot of African-Americans, especially in Chicago, and I've tried to speak to them uh, because I saw their reactions to this and it, it, it didn't make me happy. The reactions what were the reactions that you saw? Well, um, one of the first things I, I saw was someone questioning if the person was actually mentally disabled, as if it really makes a difference when it comes to torture. But there you go. You have someone questioning the actual mental state of the victim. You have people who were only saying bad things about the tactics. They weren't saying the intent and, and the behavior here is pure evil. You had them saying instead that, 
oh, what kind of dumbass goof is going to be putting their face on camera during this? What a dummy. Who's that person's mama? Who raised them? And then I, I even had people um, who were saying that white privilege is involved in this, as if maybe a black person were to be tortured, that the media would not jump all over it or wouldn't say that they had special needs. But because the person's white, that means, uh, well, of course we have to cover this. And I would, I would go into these discussions and I would say, I would question all of those things. I would say, why is it relevant if the man has special needs? This is torture. This is a terrible thing either way. Why are you questioning that even? B, why are you mocking the tactics and methodology and not the morality of the intent here and the morality of the, the action? And why are you bringing up white privilege? What does that have to do with any of this? And I would not get reasonable answers. I would, um, in fact, uh, my favorite response is I, I kind of got a little long winded and I, uh, I wrote quite a few words and the response I got was, why do I even read anything white people put online? And at that point, it's like, well, how do you, how do you have a conversation with, with that person? So I, I tried to respond to her. I got a little trolly because I knew I wasn't really going to get much of anywhere, but I, you know, I tried and she, she ended up calling me. She said, excuse me, I'm sorry. I said, you know, honestly, it's people like you who continue to push this anti-white narrative. It's people like you that is why Donald Trump got the platform because people are getting angry now. And she said, no, the reason Donald Trump won is because you sunburnt lizard people think you're superior. And it's like, okay, so now we're all lizard people. Sunburn, I understand. I don't quite get the lizard people. Me neither. Maybe they're, uh, they're combining Illuminati conspiracies with it or something. I don't know. But, um, and it's like, that one especially pissed me off because there were times where there, there was some racist bullshit being said in, in my own family about black people at one time or another, where black people were referred to as monkeys. And I would say, hey, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't say that. That's, that, that's awful. And then at the first opportunity, I mean, I know being called a lizard doesn't exactly carry with it the weight of calling a black person a monkey. But I mean, the sentiment is the same. And well, it's like, to be what? fair, monkeys are much more evolved than lizards. That's true. Um, but it's like, given the very first opportunity, you know, here's a white guy trying to understand why, you know, a large group of black people is, is saying this, is thinking this, and he's trying to come in peacefully and talk. And the very first thing you do is you refer to him as, as some animal. You know, so I don't I don't know how exactly we're supposed to combat this in our inner cities. And what I really don't know is how Donald Trump I voted for the guy. I really hope he does a good job, but I don't know how he's going to fix the inner cities when local governments don't like him. Obviously, we know mayors like Rahm Emanuel despise the man and how I mean, even the, the voters, the constituents in that city seem to be like radically against him. So I don't know how he's going to get anything done or how we can get anything done. Well, the good thing is it's not your problem. It's not my problem either. I mean, it's Donald Trump's problem. And uh, so we can observe and and obviously see what choices he's going to make. Uh, 
certainly more jobs will help. Um, m- more jobs will give those who want to work the opportunity to go and work. But, you know, the, the basic thing, and I don't know how this is going to occur. The good thing is I don't, I don't have to know because I'm not in politics. But, um, I mean, I know what I would do if I was in politics. But um, at some point, at some point, um, families are going to have to be repaired. They're going to have to be restored. Women are going to have to start having husbands and fathers for their children. And it's terrible that it's come to this place where like three quarters of black kids are growing up without fathers and the family is destroyed. And it's happening to the white and Hispanic cultures as well. But at some point, the welfare state is going to have to vastly diminish and it's going to have to move to private charity. I mean, there's no question of that. And whether that happens in a graceful way through policy or whether that happens in a sort of well, the welfare state ended when Rome fell, didn't it? <laughs> and things returned to private charity uh, under under the Germanic tribes and so on. So uh, the welfare state's going to end one way or another because mathematically it can't continue. Now, I wish the welfare state had ended 10 years ago because then there wouldn't be a migrant crisis, right? This is, I mean, I've been arguing against the welfare state and it's unbelievably toxic effects uh, since I was in my mid-teens, so, yeah, 35 years I've been saying the welfare state's going to be the end of us. The welfare state's going to be the end of us. And lo and behold, the welfare state is at the basis of the migrant crisis and therefore uh, is creating all of those challenges. So at some point, uh, women are going to have to, and, and men, but I think more women, are gonna, they're just going to have to get off the welfare state. Now, of course, they're going to scream bloody murder. My children have to eat. I mean, they're just going to go nuts. Right, and and they're going to pull every conceivable trick in the book to try and keep the welfare state going, but it it, it won't, it won't. I'm telling everyone, it won't. And my speech will be, yeah, sorry, ladies, you stripped the cupboard bare, you ate your seed crop, you took too much, you had too many children, not enough husbands, you did the wrong stuff, you knew it couldn't last, you understand, you voted. You went to government schools, but still you can do basic math and you know that endless debt can't be sustained. You understand that. Now, it is going to be tough. It is going to be tough for you to make this transition to private charity rather than dead-eyed government welfare. I mean, it's going to be a challenge. But ladies, I know you're up for that challenge. I know you can handle it. You're strong. You're resourceful. You're competent. You're proud. You're independent. Don't want to be dependent on no man. Well, men pay the taxes and men collect the taxes and men usually deliver the taxes to you. And so you don't want to be dependent on men. You want to be strong and independent women. So we're going to take away the temptation and the welfare state is, uh, is done. Now, you may say, well, this is too difficult to transition. We, we don't want to do it. We can't do it. Well, ladies, um, you say you want to be equal to men. I respect that. You don't want to be treated as lesser than men. You want to be equal to men. Well, ladies, throughout most of human history, men have been drafted into war. And that often meant that they got blown up or beheaded, or they became amputees of between one to four or five, if you count the penis, problematic areas of, det- of, of detachment. Uh, men were 
subject to mustard gas, post-traumatic stress disorder, sleeplessness. Uh, men were subject to shrapnel staying in their bodies for the rest of their lives. So men were drafted and dragged overseas and thrown into a hail of shrapnel and gunfire and explosions and, and God knows what, right? Now, ladies, that's not happening to you. <laughs> not happening to you. Uh, you're not being sent into battle, as men have in general throughout history. All that's happening is you don't get free stuff for you paid for by violence and the exploitation largely of men. Now, you don't like it when men exploit women, so now you get the opportunity to not exploit men. Now, given if you have a lot of children, it's going to be tough for you to get childcare. My suggestion is find a really nice man and settle down. Say, oh, well, there aren't enough nice men out there. Well, ladies, you've been raising men for the last two generations, so if there aren't any nice men out there, I really don't know what to say other than maybe you should have raised them a little bit differently. Maybe there should have been some nice men around them in their lives so that they could be growing up to be nice men that you can marry and raise your children with. So long and short of it is, yes, it's it's terrible uh, uh, what is happening. Um, there's, there's no money left uh, in, in the cupboard and uh, you need to uh, go and find some other way to support yourselves, you know, get a job. You can all pool together and collectively, you know, you, you can... You can get together with five or six other mothers and um, one of you can watch the kids of the others while the others are at work. You can work it out. You're smart people. You'll be able to figure it out. No problem. And just be thankful that all that's being asked of you is that you stop exploiting the taxpayers for your bad decisions rather than say you're being dragged off to go and fight a war where odds are you may not even come back and you certainly will never come back the same as when you left. So don't be too upset, ladies. You have a lot better than most men throughout history. So let's be strong and independent together, shall we? And that would be my approach. Um, That's going to have to happen uh, for sure. It's all about teaching people on sort of a larger scale that personal you know, personal virtue and personal responsibility is going to be the path to collective prospering, I suppose. And that can be a hard thing to teach, but it'll definitely be be worth it for sure, obviously. But but why why are you having these conversations at the moment? I'm I'm just I'm curious why. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I didn't hear you. The conversations that you're having about these matters where you end up being called a sunburnt lizard or whatever it is. I mean, why are you having these conversations? Well, to be honest with you, I usually avoid them completely. I'm, this is, I usually don't get into it with people on the internet. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll talk with people in my life about this kind of stuff because I'm interested in it. My friends are interested in politics. So, you know, in my personal right. life, I, I do that. Just but. don't, I mean, my suggestion is don't make much of a, a habit of it. But see, I mean, the, the older I get, and I had all these ideals when I was younger and not even that much younger, but um, it's, it's a team. Everyone's got a team. And this is the way things work. Everyone has a team except white people. But I think white people are kind of understanding that ah, if you're playing against a team, you're playing soccer for the future of civilization, and you pass to the other team because you want diversity and the other team is only going to pass to themselves you're going to lose i'm afraid you're going to have to develop some in-group preferences it's a shame it's a reality it's just what needs to be there right i mean don sure. don lemon uh was um talking about this situation um and uh he said um he had some guests on uh, matt lewis and the guest said uh, the fact that this was a vulnerable person that was probably duped into going along with them 
it appears it is someone who is mentally disabled. I think it makes it even more sickening. But at the end of the day, you just try to wrap your head around evil. That's what this is. It's evil. It's brutality. It's man's inhumanity to man. Okay, so Matt, not entirely unfamiliar with boring cliches that add nothing to the conversation, but Don Lemon said, I don't think it's evil. I don't think it's evil. I think these are young people, and I think they have bad home training. I say, who is raising these young people? I have no idea who's raising these young people because no one I know on earth who is 17 years old or 70 years old would ever think of treating another person like that. It is inhumane. And you wonder at 18 years old, where is your parent? Where's your guardian? And um, during the same discussion, Democrat strategist and former press secretary for Bernie Sanders, Simone Sanders said the attack was not a hate crime if the suspects were motivated by hate of Donald Trump. No, I think that's more like terrorism in my particular opinion. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's, not, it's not evil. Now, of course, we, we know this without even having to ask the question. If the races had been reversed and if uh, four white adults had kidnapped and were torturing a mentally handicapped young black man, then would Don Lemon say, oh, it's not evil, they're just raised badly. We know for sure that he would be all over it because that that's his team, right? He, he's a black guy, right? I don't know if he, so that's his team. And so he's very hostile to the opposing team and he's very conciliatory towards uh, his team. Now, we are a tribal species. This is how we kind of evolved as a... and and and. Whites have been trying this universal thing, right? This, okay, we'll not have an in-group preference so that we can all get along. But basically, it's like a guarded city. It's unilateral disarmament. It's what the left has always wanted, right? Unilateral disarmament, which basically means we want totalitarians to take over. So white people have universally disarmed any sense of in-group preference in the hopes that this breeds a peaceful and wonderful world. I, I would say that the hypothesis is is taking a few whacks to the head these days. It's, it's tailing, taking a few polar bear blows, right? I mean, of interracial crime between blacks and whites, 90% of it is blacks against whites, um, e- even though there are more whites than blacks, at least for now, <laughs> in America. So, yeah, Don Lemon, is, he's got his team, and uh, he is very pro his team, I assume, and, and um, not so pro the other team, and... and it's it's boring, you know. <laughs> it's the worst worst thing about it is is when we have these my team kind of groups in society, um, where the blacks look out for the interests of the blacks and and so on, and and the Asians look out for the and Muslims look out. Well, you have these groups. It's it's boring because you know you know what's going to happen every single time there's any kind of conflict or altercation, particularly when. Um, races or, or, or ideologies or ethnicities are involved. It's the same thing with women, uh, too. Uh, that you know, women, female in-group preference, you know, that the women are going to be excused and the men are going to be bad. And you know that if there's an altercation between a black and a white, that if the white looks like the aggressor, the blacks are going to go crazy. And if the black looks like the aggressor, well, normally it's been a little bit muted. This one is quite a bit different because it's so vivid and, and you can actually see the torture going on and the fact that the man is mentally uh, challenged or handicapped as well is, is, makes it even more repulsive and, and immoral. But there's no progress. Uh, there's this balkanization of belief, right? As I sort of talked about in the video, uh, what pisses me off about the Chicago torture uh, kidnapping. 
it's just this balkanization. You know everyone's opinions before you go into it. And, um, you know, when when the perception is that a white man attacked uh, a black person, then race relations are terrible. And now it's the other way around. Obama's saying, well, no, race relations are actually the best they've been under my presidency. And they're great relative. You know, we've still got things to improve, but they're doing really, really well. Of course, he won't talk about anything to do with dismantling uh, affirmative action or, or anything like that. But, you know, we, we can't make any progress. You know, when was the last time we made any kind of substantial philosophical progress as a society? Well, we can't. Because we all have these in-group preference narratives that are just bullshit and slanted and bigoted and biased and, and nothing to do with reality in particular. It's just my tribe should win. My tribe should win. My tribe should win. My tribe should win. And uh, we can't make any progress because we can't basically agree on the fundamental principles that unite us with reality. So uh, I don't really know what the answer is other than to keep doing the sort of the philosophical shows that I keep doing. But um, – I don't know if philosophy is strong enough to overcome biologically programmed in-group preferences. I have my doubts. Well, one thing I do know can, that can be of service is raising children in a peaceful, uh, happy, stable environment. And um, that video you did uh, earlier in the week about France banning spanking, that was very good news to hear. Um, my experience in, in Chicago, I've worked at, at day camps, and I, I believe that the day camps are pretty uh, somewhat comparable to the conditions in the schools, the public schools. And um, there's so much child abuse that I can't help but think it's it's obvious why there's so much crime is because kids as young as as five, six, even younger than that are being hit by their parents. And then, you know, you have a bunch of kids who are being hit by their parents and you just let them loose together. And it's, it's a disaster. And of course that's going to raise communities that are committing all sorts of, you know, violence. They're mirroring the behavior that their parents, if they're, yeah, if they even have them are doing to them. Right. I mean, France isn't the problems in France are not going to be solved by banning spanking, but it's, definitely a move in the right direction. And the funny thing is, you know, a lot of people have commented on that video like, I don't like the government getting involved in parenting. What? Are you kidding me? What if you torture your child? Can the government get involved in your parenting then? What if you starve your child? Can the government get involved in your parenting then? What if you break your child's arm? Can the government get involved in your parenting then? It's not the government getting involved in your parenting like, oh, here are the tablet games that your child is allowed to play. <laughs> you know, here's the movies. that. The it's not the government getting involved in your parenting. It's the government consistently applying non-aggression principle laws. And uh, I just I just think it's funny, like, well, parenting, uh, you know, it's such a personal decision whether I hit my child. It's like, well, you know, we can't have any laws against wife beating because then the government is getting involved in people's marital relations. It's like, no, <laughs> no, that's not the reality. And I think, you know, that the, the black kids, it's it, what is so unbelievably horrifying and tragic uh, that's going on in the black community is the there are of course there's the race and iq differences right the blacks have uh, average iq of 85 or maybe a little higher it's gone up i think a little bit but it's been stable for the past couple of decades and they have significantly increased prevalence of what's called the warrior gene which has been associated with certain levels of aggression and 
The question is, why have things gone so badly in the black community since the 60s? And it's father absence. Because if you have, let's just say, for the sake of argument, there are indications, but I don't think it's certainly proved beyond a shadow of a doubt. But let's say there is a genetic basis for increased aggression in certain groups within society. The Irish, <laughs> let's say, I can speak from some experience, but, um, well, aggression is diminished and ameliorated by father presence. And so this, this is a really awful thing, is that the group that's most vulnerable to negative behavior stemming from father absence is the group that has been delivered unto father absence by the government, by the welfare state. This is the most horrifying thing, is that you look at the, the sort of ghetto culture, the thug culture and so on, and it comes out of, it, it comes out of this father absence to a significant degree. And uh, Tommy Sotomayor, you can have a look at uh, for some interesting videos on this. Uh, he speaks about a culture I don't know much about, but uh, he seems to speak with some significant authority and uh, is certainly putting his uh, neck out on the line to, to bring some challenging truths to people. And this is what is so heartbreaking is I just, I know for, for almost a certain fact that the black community would be doing so much better now without the welfare state, if the welfare state had not been implemented, which hits the, uh, the poorest the hardest and hits those um, with the lowest opportunities the hardest. It could be so much better. And I mentioned in that video, as I mentioned again, you could read Dr. Thomas Sowell's S-O-W-E-L-L, -L, his last column uh, about this. Just There was a Harlem Renaissance, and after the Second World War, blacks were getting into the middle-class professions at significantly high rates and it could have been so much better. And even if there are genetics involved, like let's just say there are genetics involved in IQ. I mean, there's some who say yes. And uh, we had uh, James Flynn on, Dr. James Flynn, who says not so much, it's environment. But let's say, let's say it's all genetics. Well, then if there'd been a free market and less or no welfare state, if it had been private charity, then the smartest blacks would have had the most kids. Yay. <laughs> you know, that's great. Yeah. I'm not talking about eugenics. I'm talking about freedom. Uh, and the same is true for all communities. But of course, the way that it works, as we know, um, and, you know, I think Mike Judge, the beginning of idiocracy sums this up fairly well, is that with a welfare state, you have um, the smartest people having the fewest children and the less intelligent having the most children, just by the very nature of the incentives. And um, I don't know if we're going to be able to pull ourselves out of this nosedive. But uh, that doesn't mean it ain't worth a good old try. Yeah, no, it's definitely worth a try. Um, I really hope that over the next few years, over the Trump years, there's something that can be done to sort of reverse these trends. I really, you know, I hope he pulls through. Um, this this trend of violence in the black community, especially in the inner cities. If I, uh, if I could just share one quick story that's absolutely heartbreaking. It's very quick. Oh, if it's a good story, you know, I watched Lord of the Rings. If it's a Reddit Lord, if it's a good story, you could take your time. Well, it's mostly just an example of how terrible some of this stuff is. While I was working at a camp and the conditions that were put in both as workers and and that the kids are put in are just atrocious. So there would be maybe 16 college sophomores who were the, the camp counselors for maybe 200 
inner city kids. And it was the middle of the Chicago summer. It's 100 plus degrees. And there's no room inside the building for the kids. So we all have to stay in the parking lot, letting the sun reflect off the black pavement. And it's they don't even have water coolers for the kids. I would have to go on my break to the gas station to buy ice with my own money for the kids. So it's in that kind of environment, first of all, that nearly all of the summer camps are are happening and parents are either i know parents who are collecting welfare money who could be home with their kids theoretically i mean at least they have welfare money right and they're still sending the kid off to camp and which the government or the taxpayers also pays for right uh yeah some of them so it's definitely subsidized and one of the worst examples that really broke my heart, there was this kid, DJ, must have been six or seven. He was such a sweet kid. And I don't remember how it got brought up, but we were talking about his home life. And he said, well, I'm not, I'm not a bad boy like my brother. And I just said, oh, well, well, that's good. I mean, it's good that you're not a bad boy. And he said, yeah, daddy doesn't like bad boys. Daddy, daddy hits my brother when he's a bad boy. And I said, does that, okay, does your dad hit you. He said, no, I'm not a bad boy like my brother. I said, what does your brother do? And he said, oh, well, he's just so annoying. You know, my brother's two years old and he won't shut up. And I mean, I can just stop the story there that, you know, the, the a father is, is beating his two-year-old in front of his six-year-old, you know, for being a two-year-old. And there were so many instances where there are kids who are clearly mirroring the violence they see in their communities, in their homes, and they're mirroring that on peaceful kids, taking advantage of peaceful kids. And I'm put in a situation where I have to say, do I tell their parents that they were misbehaving and being bad today or do I not? Because if I don't tell them, I don't know what's going to be done because I don't exactly have all the power in the world over these kids, nor would I want to. But if I do tell them, then what are their parents going to do? Just hit them more and they're going to come back with a vengeance the next day. They're not going to trust me. They're going to feel like I'm a snitch. And um, Well, and, and they're going to blame you. Yeah. R- rather than, uh, of course, their parents, right? Because kids have to have allegiance to their parents and who's given them the food and shelter, right? And so what I do is I'd say, well, there's an anonymous way to do this. We have child abuse forms you can fill out. And I'll tell you, Stefan, I worked with kids back in Connecticut where I'm from, and there are always the occasional red flags. There's always the occasional tragic story, but nothing above normal, really, in Connecticut. And I was kind of working at more premium camps, but working at these inner city camps in Chicago, I filled out more child abuse forms in the first two weeks working there than... I had in my whole life up to that point. And I had to stop filling them out at some point because I realized my boss wasn't doing anything with him. He didn't care. And clearly he didn't care because the kids are in these squalorous conditions. So um, I know that was, you know, more of an emotion. No, I mean, I've mentioned this before. I worked in a daycare in a rough neighborhood for a number of years when I was younger. It had a big big effect on me. Lots of black kids there and um, seeing what their lives were like was, uh, was just heartbreaking. It was just heartbreaking. Yeah. And, um, I, I, I understand. I understand what you mean. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of why I called because 
you know, um, you try to make a difference in conversation. People don't care. You know, I'm a comedian. I try to speak up about certain things. And, you know, my, my Trump supporting friend, Mike, he's a comedian and he got, uh, he would get banned from shows. People would go on his Facebook and call him all sorts of names in front of his fans, in front of his family. Uh, he'd get bumped to the bottom of open mic lists, you know, things like that. Um, I one time shared a meme of Bernie Sanders and said something not 100% supportive of Bernie Sanders and uh, was told by an internship manager at a comedy venue I worked at that uh, if I kept saying things bad about Bernie Sanders, I'd be fired from the show because there were comedians messaging him saying, who's that Trump kid? Who's that racist Trump kid? Right. Now, this is the important thing. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is the really important thing that people are starting to finally figure out. I don't mean you, maybe you've known it for a long time. The left has known it's a war for 100 years or more. The left has known it's a war. Like, can you imagine if someone tweeted out some pro Bernie Sanders thing that you'd be on there typing and trying to get that person fired? Yeah, exactly. Be like, who cares? Let them say it. Yeah, know? yeah. You know, live and let live. This is your thoughts, blah, 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 right? It's a, it's a free country. You type like, But the left knows it's a war. This is why they'll try and fuck you up. This is why they'll try and get you fired. This is why they'll slander you. This is why they'll try to attack your source of income. This is why they'll try to cause problems in your life. They know it's a war. And now the right has finally figured it out. I'd like to think I have a little to do with that here and there. But the right has finally figured it out. Oh, we have to hit back. I get it. It's a war. And we're losing by pretending it's only a debate. Now, when people try and get you fired, guess what? It's not a debate anymore. When people try to get you slandered, guess what? It's not a debate anymore. When you get death threats, guess what? Not a debate anymore, people. So... That's the reality. It's not a debate. It is a battle. Now, still, it is only a battle of words, and it's a battle of income, and it's a battle of rep- a battle of reputations and so on. I hope we can keep it there, because it's still a little bit more civilized than the alternative. But they get that it's a war. Oh, this person is a Trump supporter. I'm going to fuck him up. Well, I think the right has finally figured this out. And it's saying, oh, okay. So if people are doing absolutely horrible things, we should boycott. We should figure things out. We should try and find a way to make them hurt in the way that they've made other people hurt for about a century or more. That it is a battle and discomfort is the way that we can win. Not fights, not physical, not right violence or anything like that. But consequences, negative consequences for other people. And again, friend Mike, my friend Mike Cernovich is, is on the forefront of this kind of stuff, and, and he does a magnificent job of it, and there are others as well. I do it in my own way as well. And, and I think the right has finally got this. Now, you understand what it is. You see your friend who's a Trump supporter, and, and, and you tweet out one thing about Bernie Sanders, and they try to fuck you up. And it's not, it's not going to change until we do it back. It's, I mean, sorry, these people aren't going to learn through reason and evidence. Because they have so little reason and evidence that their recourse is to try and get you fired. I'm sorry, they're going to have to learn through negative consequences. Those negative consequences being legal and peaceful. But um, yeah, Uh, this is how it has to go. And it's the left that's brought us there. The only thing that I can say is that the right has all the bottled up 
frustrated patients of the past hundred years of losing, I think that they're ready to recognize it's a battle. I'd say so too. And people rising to prominence like you, like Milo Yiannopoulos, like, I mean, fuck, like Trump. I mean, it's definitely- <laughs> I like how Trump is third in that list. <laughs> To the point that it's very, it's very, very nice. I mean, yeah, but but Trump and and Farage and and all the other people in Europe and so on, yeah. Sorry, um, be, being nice hasn't worked. Being reasonable hasn't worked. Bringing reason and evidence hasn't worked. Uh, no, now it's time to um, it's time for people to suffer the consequences of what it is that they're doing. Again, I'm talking all peaceful and all that kind of stuff, but now it, it's you, you you're going to lose if if the only person who understands to fight is your opponent. Okay. I mean, if yeah, if uh, if I think Mike Tyson wants to give me a hug and he knows we're in the ring, who's gonna <laughs> who's gonna end up on the ground? Well, either way, who's gonna end up on the ground? But it'll be faster. Right, right. Yeah, that would be you. You'd end up on. Yeah. There. Yeah. Hmm. All right, I'm going to close things down. Thanks, everyone, so much for calling in. Uh, just a wonderful evening to to chat about life uh, and the world and all the things in it. Please remember to go to freedomainradio.com slash donate to uh, help us out, to help us continue to do the magical and wonderful and rational work that we're doing uh, in the world in 2017. So freedomainradio.com slash donate. Uh, and also, please follow me on Twitter at Stefan Molyneux. Use the affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Happy New Year once more. We'll talk again soon.